Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, amazing cardio nerds. Dan Ambinder here. This episode kicks off the Cardio Nerds Lipid Series, which will be a comprehensive all-you-need-to-know series led by co-chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, incoming cardiology fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, incoming cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, or the ASPC. In this first episode, Rick and Tommy are joined by Dr. Jesse Holtzman, incoming chief resident at UCSF Internal Medicine Residency Program, to learn all about LDL physiology and function from Dr. Peter Toth. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology and made possible by unrestricted support from Amgen. The curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio nerds without external bias. Remember, if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Wink, wink, iPhone users. Those five stars will go a long way in terms of others finding the podcast. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Relevant disclosures for this episode can be found on the episode blog page. And with that, let's start our deep dive into the greasy world of lipids. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Rick Ferraro, and I'm a current PGY3 at the Johns Hopkins Internal Medicine Residency and future cardiology fellow here at Johns Hopkins University. I'm here with Tommy Das, my co-resident here at Hopkins and future cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. Tommy and I are Cardio Nerds Academy Chiefs and are thrilled to bring you all this new lipid series where we will be doing deep dives into LDL and triglycerides. We begin with the infamous LDL. In three episodes about LDL, we will review basic pathophysiology of lipids, discuss the correlation between LDL cholesterol and cardiovascular events, and delve into the guidelines that support optimal management of LDL cholesterol to prevent future cardiovascular events. Today, in the first of three episodes on LDL, we have Dr. Jesse Holtzman joining us to discuss the A to Z of LDL cholesterol biology. Jesse is a second-year internal medicine resident at University of California, San Francisco, an aspiring cardiologist and a CardioNerds Academy Fellow who's been closely involved in educating CardioNerds everywhere on cardiovascular prevention. As an educator, leader, and all-around incredible person, Jessie's been selected to serve as a chief resident at UCSF. Make sure to check out her recent tutorials on EPA and DHA and other topics. Jessie, we are thrilled to have you leading this discussion. Welcome. Thanks, Tommy. What a delight to be here discussing this rich topic. So let's cut the fat and get right down to it. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce the foremost expert in this area, Dr. Peter Toth, the Director of Preventative Cardiology at CGH Medical Center in Sterling, Illinois, Professor of Clinical Family and Community Medicine at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Peoria, and Adjunct Associate Professor of Medicine, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He received his degree from Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit, Michigan, and a PhD in biochemistry from Michigan State University in East Lansing. He has written extensively on the topic of lipids and is co-editor of 20 textbooks in preventative cardiology, diabetes, hypertension, and lipidology. 
Additionally, Dr. Toth is the president of the American Society of Preventative Cardiology, past president of the National Lipid Association, as well as the incoming chair of the American Heart Association's Council on Lipoproteins, Lipid Metabolism, and Thrombosis. Welcome, Dr. Toth. Well, thank you, Jesse, and thank you, Rick and Tommy. Dr. Toth, we'd love to start with a question that we ask everyone here. What got you excited about and interested in cardiovascular prevention and lipidology? Well, Rick, I think the bottom line here is that anyone who goes into medicine has this vision that they're going to be able to help people. And that has to be at the core of why you want to be a physician. And when you look at the inroads that have been made in cardiovascular disease, not only the management of established disease, but also our capacity to prevent many forms of cardiovascular disease, especially atherosclerotic disease, it's pretty clear that this is an area where you can make a profound difference in the lives of people. It's very clear from the clinical trials that when we initiate therapies, whether it's lifestyle or whether it's through a statin, an antihypertensive, you impact not only the quality of life, but the quantity of life. And I, I think the time horizons that are now being looked at in terms of the increase in life expectancy by treating dyslipidemia, treating hypertension, treating diabetes now, you do in fact improve the quality of life, you make life better, you make life freer of disability, and you forestall death. And I think that is an extraordinary combination. And it's the best that we can hope for as we pursue and aspire to be good physicians. Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Toth. It is so inspiring to hear back about the calling that we all have heard at some point in time and why we're doing the work that we do and the impact we can have in our patients' lives. It's amazing. So I want, I want to take some time now to put in the elbow grease and let's get back to the basics of lipidology. Let's take a journey back to the college biology class. Jesse, can you walk us through this slippery topic and remind us how the human body metabolizes lipoproteins? Sure thing. So there are two major pathways through which the body metabolizes lipoproteins. First, there's the exogenous fat metabolism. That includes digestion, absorption, and repackaging of the lipids that we ingest. Dietary fats that we ingest are disassembled from rich, energy-dense lipid macromolecules into chylomicrons. Chylomicrons are the largest, most dense particles, followed by VLDL, ILDL, LDL, and HDL. Second, there is endogenous fat metabolism that allows the liver to synthesize and secrete lipids. For a refresher on this topic, don't forget to go back to episode 42 with Drs. Anne-Marie Navarre and Nishant Shah, where they discuss lipid metabolism, therapeutic targets, and an approach to predicted risk, as well as common management scenarios. So Dr. Toth, can you remind us of the basic chemical structure of LDLC and where it fits into these two pathways? Sure. So an LDL particle is basically comprised of one molecule of apoprotein B100, which functions as a scaffold of sorts. And in your liver, ApoB is, of course, used by microsomal triglyceride transfer protein, which it lipidates. And you add phospholipid, which creates a surface. And into the core goes triglyceride and cholesterol ester. And interspersed between the phospholipid, you can have free cholesterol. And ultimately, the VLDL particle, which you have now formed, 
is secreted into the central circulation. It's acted upon by a variety of lipases, the most important one of which is lipoprotein lipase. But hepatic lipase and endothelial lipase can also act upon it. And you're stripping away the triglyceride, releasing free fatty acid, which is used as oxidizable fuel by peripheral tissues. Now, ultimately, what you yield as you progressively strip away more and more of the triglyceride is an LDL particle. It's the end product of lipoprotein metabolism. It is energy poor. And why do I say it's energy poor? Because you've now stripped away the energy-rich triglyceride and fatty acid, and you're left with a very highly concentrated particle enriched with cholesterol. Now, as you know from medical school biochemistry, your systemic tissues cannot catabolize cholesterol. So cholesterol cannot be burned as a fuel apart from your liver, which can in fact catabolize the cholesterol. The cholesterol can be converted into bile acids. Your steroidogenic tissues, such as your adrenals, ovaries, testes, the placenta, they can convert cholesterol into steroid hormones. But bottom line is LDL is spent garbage lipid, and it is tantamount that the body be well-equipped to remove this LDL from the central circulation because I will argue today that it is the single most important toxin that we produce. Dr. Taylor, I I love the idea of garbage lipid and this idea that trying to remove this from the body is so key and important, as you said, tantamount to our health going forward. And I just think back about myself back in biochemistry class, and I would have loved to have you explain these things back then as well. And I'm so happy to hear you go through them now. So let's take a step back. Cholesterol molecules are crucial for quintessential cellular functions and throughout the human body as components of the cell membrane, precursors to steroid hormones, and more. LDLC is one of the major carriers of cholesterol in the human body contributing to hepatic storage and delivery to peripheral tissues to form cell membranes and steroid hormones. I'm curious, Dr. Toth, can you tell us a little bit more about the main functions of cholesterol in the human body? Sure. So as Jesse very, very nicely summarized, we can absorb cholesterol from dietary and biliary sources across the jejunal enterocyte. But cholesterol, of course, is also produced by your liver, but it's also produced by your systemic tissues. All the cells in your body have the capacity to synthesize their own cholesterol de novo. They do not have a reliance on extracellular lipoproteins delivering cholesterol to them, though they can use that cholesterol as an exogenous source. So what is the cholesterol important for? As you already alluded to, the cholesterol can regulate the fluidity of cell membranes, which of course is very important. The cholesterol, especially some metabolites of cholesterol, such as oxysterols, they can function as regulators of ATP membrane cassette transport protein functionality. They can function as intermediaries regulating specific pathways in intermediary metabolism. We know very clearly that some derivatives of cholesterol can function as transcriptional controls within the nucleus regulating gene expression. There is a broad variety of functions for cholesterol, but here's the rub. Let's say that your cholesterol is around 25 milligrams per deciliter, and people make exclamations of despair, and they raise their arms 
and say, oh my God, are you crazy? What are you trying to do to this patient? And typically they say, well, that has to be a dangerously low cholesterol level. And my response to this is, based on what? Where are you getting this from? And typically they give you a blank stare or they say, well, I heard it from so-and-so. Well, that's fine. But what is the experimental evidence for this? And typically there isn't any. So let's contextualize this just a little bit further. So let's say, in fact, your LDL cholesterol is 25 milligrams per deciliter. We showed a couple of years ago that that still correlates with an LDL particle level of between three and 400 nanomoles per liter. Well, my goodness, that's still a lot of exogenous cholesterol that's available for a cell if, in fact, it had to draw from the extracellular milieu. Plus, that cell is capable of producing its own cholesterol. So it really gets to be a silly argument because people have to look at quantities. They have to look at kinetics. They have to look at what exactly the cell's needs are. And these are not easy issues. And so ultimately, we rely on macro effects, like are there adverse events associated with very low or ultra-low cholesterol? And as we will get into during the next few minutes, there are not. So the body does very well. Its cells do very well producing its own cholesterol because there are so many metabolites that can be converted into acetyl-CoA, the basic fundamental building block of the cholesterol nucleus. Dr. Toth, that was so incredibly helpful to hear, and I would love to circle back on the adverse effects of the low LDL or low cholesterol in general. But before we get to that, cholesterol gets painted as a villain in the media all the time. And as you alluded to, there's so many important factors that it plays in our body, transcriptional control, as you mentioned, cell membranes. I'm wondering, do you have any sense of Is this preserved across the mammalian kingdom? Are the processing pathways similar in other species as well, or is this just unique to humankind? Well, actually, that's a really good question because, in fact, across the genera defined as mammalian in biology, in fact, the pathways for cholesterol are the same. This has been highly preserved through evolution. And if you ask what should a normal LDLB, well, I'll tell you right now, it's not 130 or 100 or 70. The best estimate is actually around 38 to 40. So where do we get that number from? If you look at other mammals, like baboons or pigs or whatever it is you want to look at, horses, typically their LDLs are between 35 and 50. If you look at hunter-gatherer populations from around the world, and thank God they still exist, and we need to leave them alone, their LDLs are typically, again, between 35 and 50. Now, back in 2003, the National Cholesterol Education Program published a white paper providing an update to ATP3. And in that update, Dr. Scott Grundy provided an extraordinarily valuable depiction of the relationship between LDL and the hazard ratio for an ischemic heart disease-related event. And it was a log linear plot, and it just so happened that the y-intercept of 1, meaning no excess hazard, occurred at an LDL of 38 milligrams per deciliter, or about 1 millimole per liter. That all hangs together so beautifully. And the fact that we now look around, and an average LDL in the U.S. population is 130 
Well, I'm afraid that our blood vessels have not kept pace with evolution in terms of not having had enough time to accumulate enough natural selection that adapts us to these LDLs of 130. They're way too high. And if they weren't way too high, you wouldn't see the epidemic of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease that you see throughout the world. So the bottom line here is that when it comes to LDL, I think a very important core message, especially for fellows in training who are young, aggressive, and and they want to do absolutely everything the right way, is it's not that we lower LDL too much. We don't lower it enough, not nearly enough. Because obviously, when you look at other species classified as mammalian, and you look at hunter-gatherer populations who appear to be very resistant to the effects of atherosclerosis, their LDLs are typically between 35 and 50. What an incredible discussion. And Dr. Toth, just hearing you talk about this is a lot of fun for me being interested in preventative cardiology and lipidology. I want to come back to that, but I was hoping to take maybe a brief detour and and ask a little bit about how do we measure LDL in clinical practice? You know, one of these is a little bit near and dear to my heart at Hopkins in the Martin Hopkins equation, but I'd love to ask specifically, how, how do we measure LDL? And in particular, when do you recommend getting that fasting lipid panel versus non-fasting lipid panel? Yeah. So historically, we have used the Friedwald equation to estimate LDL. And the Friedwald, if you recall, is LDL equals TC minus HDL minus triglyceride over five. The triglyceride over five was meant to be a rough estimate for the VLDL in blood. And at our beloved Johns Hopkins, Seth Martin and Steve Jones derived a brand new formula called the Martin Hopkins formula. And basically, it is LDL equals TC minus HDL minus triglycerides over an adjustable factor. And this is because we know that VLDL levels can vary quite a lot across the spectrum of triglycerides and LDL levels. And the Martin Hopkins equation is, of course, compared to the gold standard. And many, many labs around the country, fortunately, have switched from Friedwald to Martin Hopkins. And this is good because now we have much better estimates, especially in the low range, for what the truer LDL is. Now, you can also do a direct LDL, which, as the name implies, directly measures LDL because in most labs, of course, we measure total cholesterol. We, we measure HDL. We don't, we don't estimate HDL or total cholesterol. But historically, LDL was simply estimated mathematically using Friedwald, and now we have Martin Hopkins. And Seth and Steve did an enormous amount of work on that. And thank God for that, because it is a much better approach to LDL cholesterol estimation. So fasting or non-fasting? Well, good question. We have to remember that when it comes to all of the clinical trials ever done, all of them used fasting lipid and lipoprotein parameters. And I think the purist would say, well, if you did it that way, probably you should stick with that. Now, in the last 10 years, a lot of people have been advocating for non-fasting because it's truer to life, because typically during the day, most people are are persistently postprandial. The only time they're really fasting is when they first wake up. 
And obviously, if people are postprandial most of the time, it gives you a better feel if you measured them non-fasting for what their lipids really look like in a real world setting. And bottom line here is unless someone is very insulin resistant or has a genetic polymorphism that predisposes them to a truly genetic hypertriglyceridemia, most of the time a non-fasting is going to be, you know, pretty close. The LDL will be pretty close. Postprandial triglycerides can impact HDL. If the postprandial triglycerides are high, that can lead to a transient depression in circulating HDL because it leads to an activation of hepatic lipase, which can catabolize the HDL. And then if someone isn't very insulin resistant or diabetic, typically the excursion of their serum triglyceride level would not be nearly as severe as some people expect. So I think non-fasting has its place, but I think the purist is still going to argue because all of the trials have been done in response to fasting profiles. If you're really going to do it in the context of those trials, you probably should do fasting. I'm okay with either one. Wow, that's incredibly helpful, Dr. Toth, and definitely directly relevant to our everyday clinical practice. So building off of that clinical practice, I was hoping to run a case by you that we saw in clinic the other day. So we were in clinic and we checked a routine screening lipid panel for a middle-aged gentleman. Let's call him Lundy D. Lipid. He had risk factors for cardiovascular disease, including hypertension and a history of tobacco use, but had otherwise been feeling well without any major changes in his health. So we were surprised when his LDLC returned at 33 milligrams per deciliter. So I know there are genetic causes of ultra-low LDL, including familial A-beta-lipoproteinemia and a loss of function variant of the PCSK9 gene. There are also acquired causes, including malignancies, disorders of absorption, anemia, and chronic infection. But Dr. Toth, I was hoping you could help us define what constitutes high, normal, low, or ultra-low LDLC. How low do you consider LDLC to be safe? And then is there such a thing as too low? You know, you mentioned earlier that lower is often better, but do we ever go too low with our therapy? Yeah, so that's that's a very, <laughs> very poignant, relevant question. You know, my contention would be, let's take a look at the Fourier trial, just to start. The Fourier trial actually looked at LDLs to less than 10 milligrams per deciliter. And, and obviously, all those patients were on a combination of a statin and a PCSK9 monoclonal antibody. And when you look very specifically at those patients and compare them to patients whose LDL was still over 100, there was a 42% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular events, but no increase in adverse events. Well, that's pretty reassuring. And it also supports my contention that LDL is spent garbage lipid and all these uses of, quote, LDL cholesterol that people purport are probably exaggerated, again, because cells can make their own cholesterol. Now, steroidogenic tissue does extract cholesterol from plasma reservoir, but it's from HDL cholesterol, not LDL cholesterol. The steroidogenic tissues have a very high cell surface density of scavenger receptor B1, which is specifically an HDL cell surface receptor. So what should a normal LDL be? Well, again, based on what I said earlier, I would guess between 35 and 50. That is what we were meant to have based on the data. And I think in support of this, 
the European Society of Cardiology, European Atherosclerosis Society guideline that came out last year now has a new LDL target of less than 40 for patients who sustain a secondary acute cardiovascular event after the first one. And I think that is a very, very good recommendation. So when people say, what's a a normal cholesterol? If my cholesterol is 130, is that okay? Well, you know, Jacques Genet and Peter Libby published a paper in the mid-90s, the American Journal of Cardiology. That was exactly the average LDL cholesterol that a middle-aged man presented to the ER with with an acute MI. So obviously, an LDL 130 is not normal. Back in 2001, ATP3 defined an LDL of less than 100 as optimal. But I think we've learned a lot in the last 20 years because ATP3 came out in 2001. We've learned a lot, and we now know that lower is better. We've known it from the cholesterol treatment trialist collaboration meta-analysis of secondary statin trials. We know it from meta-analyses of primary prevention trials. The relationship is a straight line. And I think the most important meta-analysis was actually done by Beckholt and Castelline, published in JAK. And they actually showed that the relationship between attained LDL on statin therapy and the hazard for a future cardiovascular event was a straight line between 25 and 200. There was no J-curve. It was not a U-curve. It didn't come down and then plateau and flatten. It was a straight line. And Fourier then went on to show that actually that relationship holds all the way down to zero. Now, because the LDLs were estimated by the Friedwald equation in the Fourier trial, you know, they did have patients who had, quote, negative LDLs and zero LDL. You never have a zero LDL. There's always going to be LDL particles in there. It's the math, whether you're using Friedwald or or Martin Hopkins or the sensitivity of the assay, which perhaps can't go down to very, very low levels. But bottom line is there will always be some LDL particles around if there's concern. I would argue it's between 35 and 50 would be normal. And I think the threshold of less than 70 for very high-risk patients is still too high. And I would also argue that For high-risk patients, uh, not very high-risk, but high-risk patients, just saying a 50% reduction in LDL is probably not enough. What what an incredible conversation there, Dr. Toth. And I mean, really, these these are the things we think about in practice every day. Your explanation there is just tremendous, and it'll be interesting to see kind of how the guidelines evolve over time. I think we can tell from that kind of where you fall on this debate as to the risks and benefits of driving LDL as low as possible. But to continue the conversation a bit, how is the experience with Mendelian mutations in PCSK9 genes and both loss of function or gain of function mutations guided our understanding of the role of LDL in the human body? And related to that, how have participants in trials of lipid-lowering therapy who develop extremely low LDL guided our understanding of potential adverse events? And I guess you did already talk about that to some degree as well. Well, let's talk about it in greater depth. So the PCSK9 polymorphisms that were either gain of function or loss of function, the most important data came out of the atherosclerosis risk and communities study and then the Dallas Heart study. And in these particular studies, it was very clear that number one, PCSK9 polymorphisms, of which there were quite a few, there were many single nucleotide polymorphisms, 
But what was clear from prospective longitudinal cohort studies was that loss of function polymorphisms were protective. They resulted in lower risk for future cardiovascular events and gain of function mutations resulted in an increased risk for future cardiovascular events. And if you look at the paper published by Helen Hobbs in the New England Journal of Medicine from Eric, it was a remarkable feature. So PCSK9 hit the map and it became a target of therapy because the size effects resulting from these SNPs were also remarkable. And so obviously there was something to it. And once again, it lent further proof to the fact that LDL reduction is extremely important. So let's take it a step further. So if you ask what adverse effects does a loss of function mutation in PCSK9 have? None. In fact, the biggest effect it has is it's protective against cardiovascular disease. And this has been shown consistently. You know, you can look at people who have a double knockout in PCSK9. They have lifelong LDLs in the teens and lower 20s. They're remarkably resistant to atherosclerosis, but the bottom line is they do not appear to be rendered more vulnerable to other forms of disease that would be life-threatening. So PCSK9 clearly was a very important genetic polymorphism that helped to further define the relationship between LDL and cardiovascular risk. And these prospective longitudinal cohort data suggested that PCSK9 would be a very potent therapeutic target against which we could leverage risk. The other part of that, and again, incredible answer, Dr. Toth, just learning so much here. How have the participants in trials of lipid-lowering therapy with low LDL, like what adverse events? But I think, honestly, you already got to it and said that the adverse events were effectively zero in, in Fourier and other studies, right? The adverse events were no different in frequency when you compared the statin to statin plus PCSK9 monoclonal antibody, no differences. And yet the LDL level in the combination therapy group was a good 63, 64% lower. And you saw a very substantial percentage of patients going to less than 25, less than 10. But let me emphasize two of the most important issues that people raise, okay? And that is, does ultra-low LDL, or let's say very low to ultra-low, ultra-low is less than 10, do they increase risk for cognitive impairment or for hemorrhagic stroke? So in 1990-ish, Jeremiah Stamler of the Multiple Risk Factor Intervention Trial, University of Illinois, he published a paper that suggested that if your LDL was less than 90, you had an increased risk for hemorrhagic stroke. Well, Okay, but you know what? The Sparkle trial actually went much lower and showed in randomized fashion that it's not attained LDL that increases risk for hemorrhagic stroke. It's actually a history of hypertension or a prior history of a hemorrhagic stroke. And then if you look at the Odyssey Outcomes trial, in Odyssey Outcomes, they very clearly showed that even with ultra low LDL, there was no excess risk for hemorrhagic stroke. And actually, Seth Martin and Aaron Mikos 
Your colleagues and my colleagues at Hopkins wrote a very, very elegant editorial on this in circulation, which I, I think should be required reading for everybody interested in this issue. And it really put to rest this issue of, well, low LDL increases risk for hemorrhagic stroke. And by the way, in every meta-analysis ever done, they've never been able to show a statistically significant relationship between hemorrhagic stroke and low LDL. At most, they may detect a 2 or 3% signal. But, you know, you can't speak out of both sides of your mouth. If you say that it's not statistically significant in terms of benefit, then I don't think you should talk about it being significant when it's not statistically significant if it's an adverse event. And moreover, let's say that a 2 or 3% change in hemorrhagic stroke was significant and you're doing a meta-analysis of 170,000 patients like the cholesterol treatment trialist collaboration did. That would tell me that if you really wanted to demonstrate significance, you'd probably need between 1 and 2 million patients worth of data. That also tells me it would be a distinctly rare event. Now, how about for cognitive impairment? Well, you know, one night if you're bored and you can't sleep and you get out of bed and you feel like listening to something depressing like Mahler's 7th or you want to you wanna listen to a Shostakovich symphony, then look at the blogs about lipid lowering and cognitive impairment. It is incredible, the things that people say. And none of it is grounded in science. So why do I say that? Well, you know, the heart protection study that was published at least 18 years ago looked at the issue with validated cognitive batteries, and they were not able to demonstrate any difference between groups treated with statin versus no statin, and they said, we can't detect a signal. The PROSPER trial actually had patients between 75 and 82 years of age by the time it was done, and they did exactly the same thing. They evaluated four validated cognitive tests on patients enrolled in PROSPER, and these patients were older. And obviously, the older you get, the higher the risk of dementia. They also did not find a relationship, and... When they did a meta-analysis of HPS and PROSPER, they also found no relationship. You're going to see a bunch of new papers coming in the literature showing no relationship. And then you've got the granddaddy of this whole thing, Ebbinghaus. Well, Ebbinghaus was extremely important because now you're looking to see if there's any evidence of cognitive impairment in patients treated more aggressively than ever before. And Ebbinghaus, using the Cambridge cognitive battery, which evaluated five executive functions, unable to find any before and after differences. Now, what was even more important, as published in Jack last fall, when they looked at patient questionnaires in Ebbinghaus, even the patients didn't report any difference before and after treatment. So why does this make sense to me? It makes sense to me because your brain couldn't give a damn what a drug is doing to your liver. Lipids and lipoproteins don't cross the blood-brain barrier. We have to remember that the blood-brain barrier is a highly efficient barrier. Lipoproteins don't cross. So your brain has evolved to produce all of its own cholesterol. Oligodendrocytes produce the cholesterol for your myelin-forming neurons and for axons. And it's actually astrocytes which produce cholesterol for the neurons. Now, this is really cool. 
your brain has its own apoprotein and lipoprotein metabolism, its own ABC cassette membrane transporters, and the astrocytes and oligodendrocytes make sure that neurons can just focus running the central nervous system and they say, just leave cholesterol biosynthesis to us. There's only one cholesterol metabolite that leaves the brain. That's 24S-hydroxycholesterol. That can cross the blood-brain barrier. But the half-life of cholesterol in your brain is seven and a half years. And it does not come from your liver. So I think our brain is safe. And obviously, we know that lipid lowering reduces risk of stroke. It'll be interesting in the future to see if it reduces risk of small vessel disease. But to date... They have not been able to demonstrate any relationship between hemorrhagic stroke and neurocognitive impairments, and I think that's very reassuring. So, Dr. Toth, some of the other concerns I've heard about ultra-low LDL pertain to altering the immune system or affecting bone metabolism. I'm wondering, have you heard anything about these concerns, and what would you tell your patients if they came to you asking about that with lipid-lowering therapy? Yeah. So, you know, there's levels of evidence. You do not see evidence in the big clinical trials. And again, randomized studies are the gold standard. You're not seeing increased risk for infection when you look at statin trials or statin plus PCSK9 or statin plus azetamide. You do not see increased risk of infection. And in fact, it's been shown that just by way of example, statins help T helper cells better turn on and off in the face of intravascular inflammation. And I'm sure all of you guys know that there are multiple studies now addressing COVID where patients on statins who do develop more severe COVID infection have lower mortality, lower risk of cytokine storm syndrome. In terms of bone marrow, you know, bone marrow is pretty complicated. And sure, I've seen papers where they say platelets go up or this certain subpopulation of white cells go up. But bottom line is, it's very difficult to tease out what impact statin is having on very specific blast cell populations, on erythroid precursors, on megakaryocytes, specific maturation factors being elaborated within bone marrow. None of that's been looked at in detail. All they're doing is looking at uh, small effects on circulating levels of cells, but that tells you nothing about the dynamics within the bone marrow. And similarly, when it comes to bone density, well, you know, there are some small studies that say that statins have adverse or they have positive effects on bone density. But bottom line is, you know what? We have a lot of women in this world on statins, and if there was a signal suggesting that they had accelerated osteoporosis, we would have found it by now after 30 plus years of statins being available to women. So I don't take a lot of that very seriously because obviously I want to see randomized data. I want to see more specific data. I want things broken down into their parts. Don't just tell me about gross overall effects because they may not be telling you anything about what's going on in terms of the cell-to-cell or molecule-to-cell level of action. Wow, Dr. Tov, this is such a rich discussion, and you've laid out an incredibly compelling argument here about not only that, well, as we all know, the important risk factors 
that LDL presents in terms of predicting coronary disease. And you've now gone out and laid out a really compelling argument, like I said earlier, for showing how the low LDLs, a lot of the concerns we have had about them may not be as founded when you actually look at the data. So I, I want to play a little bit devil's advocate, though, and ask, you know, what about those folks who have relatively low total cholesterol or individuals with elevated LDL who never develop a cardiovascular disorder? We know from recent studies, the risk of coronary disease confirmed by LDLC levels is modified by an individual's genetic background. You know, as we're moving into this world of personalized medicine, Dr. Tove, how do you think about the role of genetics and polygenic risk scores in your understanding of lipid biology and in your practice? Yeah. So, so Tommy, there's always exceptions. You know, I can say, well, I, I inherited a diabetic patient who has had a hemoglobin A1C of 10 for the last 15 years because his previous physician did a poor job managing his blood sugars. I do a coronary calcium score and it's 20. Or I can take a patient with heterozygous FH with an LDL of 290. He's 50 years old and he has no coronary calcium. It's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. What we're looking at is average effects. We know that on average, LDL is highly injurious. We know that the lower you go, the lower the risk. I argue that LDL is the most important toxin that we are exposed to. If I was wrong, we wouldn't see the global prevalence of MI, stroke, sudden death, need for revascularization, lower extremity amputation due to critical limb ischemia. You wouldn't be seeing this, but we do. And there is no other toxin that I can think of manufactured by the body that has this size effect on morbidity and mortality in both men and women. So there's always going to be exceptions. And how do we try to improve detection of risk in exceptions? Well, genetic risk scores. Now, you need a certain critical mass of single nucleotide polymorphisms to make this biologically meaningful. If you're only going to look at two or three and they don't occur very often, then basically you're wasting money because you're not going to do much in terms of identifying many people who have sort of an oddball risk. But if you start looking at, say, 20, 25, 30 of these things, and they are reasonably prevalent in the population, they meaningfully impact risk for future cardiovascular events, then a genetic risk score makes a great deal of sense. And obviously, you have to generate some receiver operator curves to see how much you're improving upon risk estimation over, say, a Framingham or a pooled cohort risk equation. But they do these things, and obviously, they do lend adequate improvement in some cases to justify their use. So I'm all for it as long as the ROC tells me that I'm really giving my patient a good value and it's going to improve the quality of what I see in that crystal ball for risk evaluation. That's incredible, Dr. Toth. And again, so grateful for these answers here. We've learned so much from, from just listening to you today. You know, I'd love to ask a follow-up question as to kind of where do we go from here with respect to pathophys and in particular focusing on PCSK9 inhibitors. Are these going to become more widely available? And as they do, is is this something we should just put in the water or, or what is your take on that? Well, I think number one, do we do a good job lowering LDL? No, we do a lousy job. Depending upon the study you look at, and there are many, and they're virtually all discouraging, anywhere from 18 to 40% of patients, very high-risk patients, have their LDL less than 70. So although our conversation today is very meaningful, I think 
to a, a very significant percentage of practicing physicians, it's not very practical because they're not doing near enough to lower LDL, never mind getting into the ultra low range. So we need to do a better job with this. Second, there have been two Medicare analyses performed in the last three years, and half of all Medicare patients who sustain an MI are on no statin therapy. Why not? That is incredible. Third, 50% of people who start lipid-lowering therapy, even if they're high and very high risk, stop it within six months. By five years, only 21% of people are still on their lipid-lowering therapy. And, and we published that data. And then a month later, Fatima Rodriguez out of Stanford published another analysis that showed exactly the same thing. So we have these incredible problems. Look at a paper just published in JAMA Cardiology. This was the largest cardiology practice in all of Pennsylvania. There were prompts built into the electronic health record. And if a patient was inadequately dosed on a statin because of their risk profile or their LDL was not a target, a prompt came up and said, need to do something. What do you think happened? Nothing. There was neither titration nor was effort made to lower the LDL to target. Unbelievable. So what do I think? I hope to God that the use of PCSK9 monoclonals expands because patients are not having their statins titrated. They're started on a low dose and they're parked there. Well, you add a PCSK9 monoclonal to a statin, you dramatically increase LDL goal attainment. We know this. You can take LDL goal attainment as they showed in Fourier from 18% into the 90% range. Well, I'll take that anytime. And you and I, look, all you guys are very smart. You know how this works. If you're not a goal, you don't do as well. We know that patients who stop their lipid-lowering therapy have increased risk for morbidity and mortality. If they're inadequately dosed, they have higher risk compared to patients who are appropriately dosed. The list goes on. So PCSK9 monoclonals play a crucial role in this because they dramatically increase success rates, dramatically lower LDL. And as we saw in Fourier and Odyssey outcomes, they improve outcomes. So this is a win-win for everybody. And ultimately, what we're trying to do as preventive cardiologists is reduce event rates. And reducing event rates, of course, improves patient lives. If you reduce event rates, you're also going to be in, in tandem with that, reducing need for revascularization because you're slowing rates of atherogenesis. And if fewer people die and they're living more healthy lives, you're doing your job. So should it be in the water? Well, it can't be in the water because you have to inject it. But bottom line here is PCSK9s have a very important role to play and they are not being used. Seth Baum, in this month's issue of the American Journal of Preventive Cardiology, just reported on a state-by-state -state basis the use of lipid-lowering therapy in high and very high-risk patients, and PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies were used less than 1% of the time. Now, that's disgraceful. That is disgraceful. And goal attainment rates were terrible. I wrote an accompanying editorial to that paper, and I, I am speechless that basically goal attainment rates in the last 20 years, despite more aggressive guidelines, more specific, more refined guidelines, haven't moved the needle. And so we have to really help understand why LDL reduction is so important.
Dr. Toth, we cannot thank you enough for sharing your expertise with us today. It has been such an honor to learn from your vast experience in the world of lipids. So before we wrap up, we have to ask you a Cardio Nerds classic. Sure. What is it that makes your heart flutter about lipids? Well, they're fascinating. As a biochemist, I find them fascinating. If you were to explore triglycerides, you would, based on cis-trans isomerization, based on carbon length, based on any number of issues, there are hundreds of species of triglycerides in your body. There are many species of phospholipid. All the machinations of lipid and lipoprotein metabolism, all the intercept points with drugs, and ultimately my heart flutters from lipids because they play such an important role in reducing risk for not only disease progression, but also disease development. And that's what we're about. We're trying to make the lives of people better. We're trying to preserve function. We're trying to help them live healthier lives, more mindful lives. And I think when you control lipids, because again, I think LDL is the most important toxin we are exposed to, you are going a long way toward achieving many of those goals that we took an oath to uphold when we graduated from medical school. Wow, Dr. Toth, really cannot thank you enough for this eye-opening discussion on the fascinating world of LDL and really taking us on this journey of pathophys and lipidology. I mean, what an incredible discussion here and really cannot thank you enough for your time. Well, thank you, Rick. And thank you, Jesse and Tommy and Amit. Such a delight to be here with you. And I really love your passion. I, I love your energy. You're all highly accomplished residents and God, I wish you so much success as you go into cardiology fellowship, and I'm sure you're going to tear up the road in the years ahead. So you keep at it. It's, it's an honor to hear that from you, Dr. Toth. For our audience, don't forget to join us as well for parts two and three of this series as we work to help you master the slippery topics of LDL cholesterol, followed by a dive into triglycerides. It's been an incredible discussion. Really grateful for your time, Dr. Toth, and we'll see you all next time, Cardio Nerds. Thank you. Thank you.